Hey there, everyone. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, it is Thursday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day or um, happy Best Friends Day, Galentine's Day, whatever the hell you call it. But my name is Raphael Garcia, and I'm with Shawan Humes for episode 112 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. And, you know, it's funny. We're on February 14th. We're doing episode 112. I can't help but make a Cupid reference from the early early uh thousands or what was it late 90s or whatever Sean, are you yeah, up on that yeah i was wondering where you were going with that then i was like oh cupid 112 that's nice yes. that was a good yes. one nice little segue there i couldn't help myself i didn't even realize it that was not planned folks that's the only type of thing that you'll get here every thursday <laughs> but with that in mind man Sean, let everybody know how you're doing how's the week been going so far uh, hectic. It's always busy. I'm waiting for the day I have a slow week. I got two more years and three of these kids are out of here, so it'll be a lot easier then. But then what you want to have to do, busy. man? The wife, the wife well, want to have you doing chores all day, every day. I still got the six-year-old. She's interested in a lot of stuff, too, so it'll always be something. Okay, okay. So with that in mind, man, let's go ahead and jump into the show because we got a hell of a lot to talk about. Well, we have a lot to talk about, but we don't really have a lot to talk about because... Yes, we have three cards this weekend, two Bellators and one UFC. But if you look at the Bellator cards, it really isn't a lot there. There's definitely more on this UFC card where we have UFC on ESPN1 that's set for Sunday, which almost pissed me off. But I forgot that I'm off on Monday, so I really don't care. But we have quite a bit to talk about. And I want to hit these two Bellator cards first, but I don't want to hit them individually because... 215 is kind of bare bones. It doesn't really have a lot. I was looking at it yesterday as I was writing about um, Matt Mitrione's interview. So there's just a couple of things I wanted to talk about here. Um, Let's talk about this main event first. Where Actually, let me take a step back. Before we even do that, there is some Bellator news I want to talk about where we are getting, finally, after three years in the making, Patricio Friere and Michael Chandler are fighting for the Bellator 155-pound title. That's coming on Bellator 221 next month, I believe. What do you think about that, man? Because this is a pretty big, uh, important fight. I feel like this is the most organic champ-champ fight that we've had uh, in the last few years. If you look at all, all, of the, all of the champ-champ fights we've had, this is probably the most intriguing and most organic one to me. What are your thoughts about this fight here, and who are you picking from an early uh, consensus? Yeah, I I know Patricky's manager, and he's been asking for this fight forever. And you, you you're right in saying it's organic because they don't like each other. It's been an ongoing feud back and forth, not to not not just as fighters, but it but as um, faces of the organization. As you know, the Pitbull brothers have been with Bellator for an extended period of time, getting these big knockouts, putting on these exciting fights, and yet they've never really gotten the run that Michael Chandler has. So there's this underlying competition not just as actual fighters but actually as who's getting the most attention who's being respectful for what they've done for the company and the pitbull brothers have always felt that bellator has gone out of their way to push them to the side for whatever the new toy is or for a guy who's american and so you see the culmination of all this you'll see the culmination of all this when they when they get in the cage and they fight for a chandler's title uh as far as the fight as far as how intriguing it is it's very intriguing uh michael's the bigger guy He's a wrestler, so you always have to wonder what's going to happen if he gets his hands on Patricky. Can he just take him down left and right and wear him out and control him? But in the past few years, Chandler hasn't looked as explosive, nor as dominant with his wrestling, and he surely hasn't looked as, as refined or effective on his feet. So you have to wonder, 
how much punishment can he take if he gets hit? How hard a pace can he push? And how much of that athleticism does he have left? Because he's been a guy who's who's rid a, ridden a lot on his aggression, his toughness, and his athleticism. I don't think he's the same athlete he was before. I don't think he's, his chin is anywhere near where it used to be. And because of those two things, his ability to create opportunities to wrestle or get those clean takedown entries hasn't been there. He hasn't looked nearly as dominant in the past two years as he looked prior to fighting Eddie Alvarez, what, the first or second time. So it's very interesting to see how much he has left and if he's going to be able to get get himself up to compete for this grudge match. I know Patricky's already there. He wants his fight. He wants to shut Chandler up. He wants to expose Chandler. And he's getting a shot that he's been clamoring for for years and years and months and months and trying to talk to anybody who will listen. So I know he's going to be up for this fight. I hope that Michael Chandler is because if he's anything less than 100%, I don't see a way he gets out of this fight with a win. I also kind of agree with you there um, because it's, this fight is very interesting to me for a number of reasons as well. Um, we know that Pitbull hits hard. He comes with the leather and he comes with it quite frequently. What I'm concerned about is whether or not Chandler can still take that type of punishment. We saw how he reacted back when he fought, um, who was it, Will Brooks years ago. It kinda, he didn't look... He didn't look okay, and he and yes, he's looked better since then. But he hasn't fought someone that's as big of a puncher as Pitbull is, and it'll be interesting to see what Pitbull's power is like, how it translates to 155 without him having to worry about that weight cut. So there are a lot of intriguing questions here. I mean, Michael Chandler and Pitbull, in my opinion, are two of the last guys that you wonder what they will look like if they fall in, in in the UFC, how highly would they be ranked? That's still a really intriguing conversation to me. So this fight, when it was announced, I definitely got excited for it. And it's probably one of the battles or bouts I'm most um, looking forward to watching in the, in the last few months. I mean, other than Aaron Pico fighting, watching what he looks like in that Ed Ruth and Neiman Gracie fight from a couple months back, I haven't been too uh, interested in what this promotion has put together all the time. But this fight definitely jumped off the page to me. I don't know if it's so much of a power thing. I, it's like Chandler Chandler's gotten dinged up by David Rickles. He he caught him a little bit. Brett Primus was able to put some heat on him. I, I think that Petriki's a little bit more measured and a little bit more technical, and he's more defensively sound. He ends up getting into high exchanges because he forces such a pace, and he wants to punish guys. But overall, his striking is a lot cleaner than um than Chandler's. And the biggest problem I have with Chandler now isn't that he can't hit. He can still hit. He's still decent. He still throws a lot of volume, but the thing is he can't, he doesn't get into exchanges anymore, extended exchanges because he knows he can't handle what's coming back. And he also doesn't really pour on the volume with guys anymore because same reason he knows he can't afford to sit in, in the pocket and throw five, six, seven, eight, nine shots. Cause if a guy swings back and a guy's got even decent power, he might be in trouble. And, and it's little, it's little things. You notice his footwork's just not as dynamic. It's never been super clean. A lot of it's been, He's a better athlete. He can move in and out. He can get these angles, not because he technically knows how to get the angles, but because he's so much of a better athlete. And now that that's kind of leveled off, you really don't know what to expect from him. People expected him to go and teach Brett Primus a lesson. He didn't really teach Brett Primus a lesson. He beat him decisively, fairly decisively, but he didn't put the beating on him. He said he was going to. He didn't punish him. He didn't just outright outclass Brett Primus. I mean, I saw the fight. That wasn't him outclassed him. He outwrestled him, but he struggled to do that. He struggled to outwrestle him. He struggled to get him to the ground in spots, and he wasn't able to. He was 50-50 on the feet at best. 
I think Primus handled handled him a little bit better than he handled Primus. Now Primus is a bigger guy, but Primus doesn't have the precision or the experience of a pit bull. He just has a size advantage, which plays a big part. It's really it's just really interesting to see the t- see someone's career arc go up so fast, like a like a falling star. Basically, he had the fight with Eddie Alvarez, fight of the year, second fight Eddie Alvarez, fight of the year, loses two in a row to Will Brooks. Then starts beating up on, you know, also Rands and so-so guys. And he's never really looked as dominant as he did about two years ago. And it's two or three years ago. And it's really amazing to see a guy who was at the top of his sport all of a sudden still competing at a high level, but not nearly as dominant or nearly as impressive. It's like a lesser version of what Johnny Hendricks went through when he started falling off. And I just wonder if Bellator had a better level of talent overall, if he wouldn't have already been exposed and, and sent on his way as a lower tier fighter with a name. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that fight too, man, because we're going to see what the wear and tear of the years have done to um, both of these men. So let's go ahead and jump into what we were originally talking about, and let's cover a couple fights on Bellator 215. Uh, let's talk about this main event first, where we have Matt Mitrione and Sergei Haratonov. The Bellator heavyweight division is basically wide open. You have Ryan Bader, who's uh, the double champion there at heavyweight in 205, and they he doesn't have any contenders. I mean, nothing was – nothing – looked too tough for him at all during the uh, Bellator Grand Prix. Um, Matt Mitrione was the only guy who went three rounds with him, but he still didn't really land anything of note during that whole 15-minute contest. Does this heavyweight fight intrigue you as to see who uh, should be next to, the, to challenge him? I mean, in my opinion, Sergey is probably the guy that I want to see him fight because out of these two, just because you know Sergey always has that ability to land a big bomb and get the fight over with and get his opponent out of there. But um, what about this fight really jumps out to you, if anything at all? Well, the thing about it is Sergey actually has some kind of competence as a grappler. Mitrione is just so – I mean, he is literally one-dimensional. The only guy I've seen him wrestle or grapple is Kimbo Slice, rest in peace. And he didn't even dominate Kimbo. Kimbo took him down. Kimbo defended his submissions and was kind of working him over on the ground. So Matt Mitrione has, ne- has Matt Mitrione's been a top-end athlete in one of the weakest, most shallow divisions in, in mixed martial arts. And the only thing that's held him back is his inability to wrestle or grapple at all with any sort of confidence against anybody with a pulse. That got him exposed in the UFC. Travis Brown out-wrestled him and submitted him, if I remember correctly. And then... The same thing's essentially been happening over here. He got taken down by Bader, and he couldn't do anything with him. He couldn't get strikes off. He couldn't stay away from him. He got taken down and worked over. Sergey actually has some competence on the ground. So it, in theory, he could go into a striking exchange early, get a body lock on him, shoot a slow double. Hell, they could just exchange and tumble to the ground, and he would have a huge advantage over Mitrione. Mitch, on the feet, it's 50-50. Mitrione's not the striker Sergey is, and he doesn't really have a great chin. But Mitrione is one of the better athletes, quick, fast, and it's hard to find a, find a heavyweight who can match his physical attributes. The question is how much mileage is on Sergey, and if he can take the punishment when he fights Mitrione. Most guys don't have enough speed and aren't defensively sound enough to just get to Mitrione without being touched. Sergey is going to be a guy who's going to get touched by Mitrione as well. But for Bellator, the best case possible is Sergey wins the fight because if Mitrione wins, you want to see a rematch of him and Bader. Bader just – I mean, Bader – embarrassed him i mean mitrione probably have to win another three or four fights just for me to even consider him fighting riding bayer because he's never going to become a better defensive wrestler or defensive grappler so that matchup is just going to be the way it's going to be 10 times out of 10 sergey as i said before has some other grappling background is a much more physical fighter than mitrione and his hands are a little bit better so he can jab 
He can faint. He can w- get into certain positions and stay out of them instead of leaning so heavily on kicks and big explosive movements like Matt Mitrione. So the best case scenario for Bellator is that Sergey wins and and Bader faces him. The worst case scenario is Mitrione wins, and then you have a fu- you you still don't have any heavyweight contenders because you can't come off a loss like that to Bader and think you're going to get a title shot um, just because you have one win, even if it's a spectacular one. Yeah, I'm not really too uh, – I, I definitely agree with you there. I think that this is kind of the the best-case scenario for Bellator right now is for Sergey to get the win and for Sergey to move on uh, to potentially face Ryan Bader. But either one of these guys um, aren't really a challenge for Ray, Ryan right now. We've seen what he's been able to do since leaving the UFC, and we've seen him been able, how he's continued to improve. There was a conversation, I believe, last week about – how he would look facing against uh, uh, Daniel Cormier. Let's talk about that real quick because we didn't get an opportunity to talk about that last week. How do you think a, a fight between Ryan Bader and Daniel Cormier would look today as opposed to what it would look like when they were having their beef five years ago, whatever that was? At this stage, I think Cormier's lost a step. He, he's not as good in condition. I think he's been through a lot of wars. But I just don't know that at this level that Bader has enough power to really dissuade Cormier. He'd be faster, be quicker. But the fact of the matter is I think Cormier could walk through pretty much anything that Bader's given to him. And I don't know that Bader can take the punishment that Cormier has to dish out. Bader's never really had a great chin. Bader's never really recovered very well. And I don't know how well Bader does when he has a guy he can't out wrestle. I've never seen him really win a fight versus a guy he can't out wrestle when he hasn't been able to use the wrestling as a threat or control a guy with the wrestling when has Bader ever really been super successful? And when he's been when he's been faced with guys who hit him back, when has Bader ever been su- really successful? Not really often, not at the highest levels. While I think he could finish Cormier because Cormier's defense isn't really good and Cormier's conditioning isn't where it used to be, I still say Cormier's wrestling pedigree, his physicality, and his own power is enough to to get Bader out of there. I, I just I still haven't seen Bader take a lot of clean shots. So until I see him get punched in the face, my my questions about him facing a guy with at least two dimensions to his fighting style are going to stay around. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about it now, and the last few times I can think of him really getting hit in the face and getting hit clean were the Glover to the Sheriff fight and Anthony Johnson. Lieta. And we saw how all three of those went. So it would be intriguing to see what he would look like if he faced someone that can definitely punch back with him. Um, the other fight that caught my eye on Bellator 215 was this Logan Storley fight. He's 9-0, and he's kind of a prospect. He's 26 years old, and he looks like a, an intriguing name for this Bellator division here. What? Look at this fight, and, and what else on this card stands out to you on Friday from Bellator uh, 216? I didn't, I really, outside of the, the name fights, I haven't paid a lot of attention to Bellator just because, as I said before, the, there's such a drop off from the top five or top seven to anything else. It's like you don't, you don't really know who can fight until they face a name because the talent level is so, there's so much disparity in the talent level. And that's the biggest problem for Bellator. You can't become authentic and you can't be taken seriously when there's such a big gap between the number five guy in the world and the number seven guy in the world. In, as far as your rankings go. And that's what it is in Bellator. Top five are on one level, and then you go, you go down one spot, six or seven, and it's like these guys don't even belong in the ring with them. That's why Bellator can have these guys go on these long win streaks because they're facing guys who 
won two out of four, three out of seven, or guys who aren't even on that level who are just, you know, trying to get a name. It's, it's just hard to really prove your guys are legitimate and prove they can compete when they go from fighting guys who are threes and fours and all of a sudden got to jump up to an eight or nine. It's not a good way to develop guys, and it's really not a good way to build the legitimacy of your of your organization because people know that the level of competition just isn't that difficult unless you're fighting the top five or seven, and that's why you see the same rematches for years. You saw the same rematches, Strauss versus so-and-so, part four, Curran versus so-and-so, part three. Like, How are you having this many rematches if you have any other viable options of legitimate fighters? Bellator doesn't. So it's really hard to get excited for their cards. It's really hard to really gauge their fighters. It's really hard to take them seriously because in every division, you got five or seven guys who can fight in it, only really three or four who could dominantly fight in it. So are you saying there's nothing else from this event that kind of hops off the page to you? There isn't any, anyone fighting that make that piques your interest, at least on this fight card. Uh, to be, I mean, to be really honest, I, I almost forgot there was a bell to a fight card. I mean, and I, and I usually pay attention to everything, but I really almost forgot about it just because the matchups weren't particularly stand out to me. They're kind of like, whether the fight goes either way, it's, it's not a question of who's going to win or how they're going to win. It's, it's cr- pretty clear narratives. And there's not a big, there's not a big storyline as to what happens next. So when there's lack of direction and a real lack of mystery in the fight, it becomes hard to re- really invest in it. That's just me. Other people might not have a problem. I, I'll still watch it, but it's really hard to get super excited or really break it down because there's just not much going on after the fight and the, and the, the road to victory for either guy is so obvious in, in, in the fight. Okay, no problem. I definitely understand that because I kind of agree with you about Bellator 215. Nothing really kind of hops off the page to me there. Bellator 216 is a little bit different because we have uh, Paul Daly and Michael Page fighting in the main event. Vatilin Minikoff and Czech Congo, they've already been determined as being the fight for the number one contender for the heavyweight title. So they're also fighting in the co-main. Roy Nelson and Krokop are fighting. Eric Silva is making his Bellator debut. Uh, Valerie Lareda, she's making her pro uh, debut, also fighting in Bellator for the first time. So there's, there's a little bit more here to kind of pick out from. Let's talk with about this fight from Daly and Michael Page first, because this is clearly Michael Page's tough, toughest fight in his 13-fight uh, MMA career. And he's been styling on guys. I mean, basically highlight reeling people left and right since he came in to the, the sport. Is this fight going to go the same way for him or is he in for a rude, rude awakening? Well, on paper, this is the best striker he's faced in mixed martial arts. It's a guy who's got literally, literally one punch knockout power, a guy who can end the fight at any moment. If he lands that left hook, a guy who's shown durability and a chin, a guy who's been in with, pretty much every level, every style, every level of athlete, every level of fighter, every, every style of fighter. So based on just based on paper, experience level, quality of opposition, and the ability to end a fight quickly and and have and the skill set, this is going to be MVP's hardest fight because most of the guys he's fought were at athletic disadvantage, weren't much more experienced in him, or even if they had a skill set advantage, they didn't have the athleticism or the experience to, to know how to employ it like he's faced a couple decent grapplers and wrestlers who who just weren't good enough athletes or good enough or experienced enough strikers to create the openings to get him to the ground or get him to the cage or to neutralize his striking with the threat of their grappling and and takedowns um daly's not who he used to be he's not as quick off the trigger with his counters 
I don't I don't believe he's as durable as he used to be. He doesn't take punishment as well. I still believe he he has enough power to be a threat, but he's shown enough chinks in his armor that there's a possibility that MVP wins this. He's the longer guy. He's the more mobile guy. He's the more esoteric in his strikes. His striking is a little bit more unorthodox. And he's probably the better athlete. He's better athlete, more dynamic at this stage than Paul Daly. The question we always have with, with um, MVP is what happens when he gets hit? What happens when he gets hit hard? Nobody knows. We haven't seen it. So based on paper, it, it's a really tough fight. and It'd be hard not to, to pick Daly over him. But once again, I don't think Daly is who he used to be. I think he's dependent a little bit more on his power. And to a certain degree, I think he's maybe regressed a little bit in his overall striking. And I don't, I don't know that he's a, he's a balanced enough mixed martial artist to actually try to invoke any wrestling or grappling into it, which would be the biggest shock in the world to anybody. So it, it's a good matchup. It's between two strikers. We won't know anything until we see how MVP takes punishment. He hasn't really had to take any. He, we know he can dish it out, but we don't know if he can take it. And we don't know how well he dishes it out when there's a threat of being return, a return fire coming back at him. So let me ask this. Is this the fight where we see if he can take shots or or not? I'd have to say yes. I, I don't know how he gets through this entire fight. I mean, there is a possibility with his timing and his movement, there is a possibility he could just catch catch Daly coming in and just ice him. But given the fact that Daly is very experienced in striking, is very experienced in striking and mixed martial arts, I can't see... I don't see how Daly doesn't get off at some point, whether it's working the legs, working the body, a counter shot to the head. I don't see how MVP gets through this fight and goes untouched. Daly's seen what MVP does. He hates this guy. He's been begging for this fight for years. So I have to imagine he's come up with a game plan of how to defensively, how to responsibly attack and walk down MVP. He's not going to come in there swinging wild. He's not going to be going for desperation takedowns. He's going to have a measured poised deliberate attack and and one thing i had to bring up lorenz i would have loved to see a lorenz larkin mvp fight just because of the athleticism and the creativity and their striking but daly's shown the ability to handle somebody who's dynamic and creative with their striking lorenz larkin was laying the lumber to him he landed one shot and that fight was over so it's not like he hasn't seen somebody with the physical tools and maybe not the same style but in the same generality of styles as far as uniqueness and being unorthodox so I don't see a way that MVP gets through this. We won't, I don't believe we'll get through this fight without knowing if MVP can take punishment or not. And if he can't take punishment, uh, he, he won't just not win this fight. He won't have a career in mixed martial arts, period. Once, once guys know you can't take it, they get real brave when they know that any, when they know, because everybody says, I know any shot can end the fight. And we all, fighters always say that, well, you're in the fight game, any shot can end it. That's not true. We know for a fact, some guys had to land 50 shots for it to end it. But when we literally know any one or two shots could put you away, People get real brave, regardless of your skill set, whether it's standing on the ground. When I literally know if I touch you, you go down, it changes how people fight you. So we're going to find out if MVP is who he says he is, and we're going to see if he can make adjustments, and we're going to see if he has a career after this fight. Because if he gets iced in one shot, um, he, he will not. All right, so I got two questions for you. The first one is this. Do we see Paul Daly get off? I mean, he... He's one of the guys in MMA that you could not pay me to allow him to punch me in the face. I, he, I, it looks like every time he lands something viciously, it knocks years off of his opponent's life every single time. Do you? Do we think that he has the ability to strike with uh, MVP for five rounds and put himself in a position to land some big shots? 
Um, yeah, I truly believe that he's that dynamic. And like I said, he's 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 not some guy who just used to kickbox for fun. He's a legitimate kickboxer. He used to compete in kickboxing quite often. So it's not something that's new to him. This is something he this is something he's done for years as a professional. And even when he's not done it for years in professional, he's actually engaged in extensive striking exchanges with guys in mixed martial arts. And I'll, I'll compare it to the Anderson Silva, Israel Adesanya thing. Anderson isn't a fighter or striker of the caliber of Israel, but just through experience of training a lot, sparring a lot, working on different techniques and fighting a lot in mixed martial arts, he was able to have more success than much younger, much more athletic, guys who had better all-round skills than Anderson. Anderson was able to have moments of success. I can't imagine that Paul Daly won't have similar moments of success because as good as MVP is, I don't think he's on the caliber of uh, Israel Adesanya, not in straight-up striking. He's very good. He's very athletic. He's very unique, but I don't feel he's as accomplished. Now, Paul Daly's style is a little easier to counter because it's so straight ahead and it's so, I don't want to say predictable, but it's so typical of his style, but you can't, you can't overlook experience, you can't o- overlook seasoning, and you can't overlook poise, all of which Paul Daly has. MVP has never been any sort of – he's never faced a guy who can take openings away. He's never faced a guy who could take his shots. He's never faced a guy who doesn't walk into every single trap he sets for him. Experience will allow you to navigate traps and recognize things. Experience will allow you to attack different targets. Experience will allow you to use different tricks to get shots off. And once again, I go back to the Adesanya Silva thing. At this point, Derek Brunson is faster than Anderson Silva. Why couldn't he land? He doesn't have the seasoning. He does not have the experience. He does not have the understanding of striking. And no amount of youth or athleticism is going to make up for that when you're facing an athletic, youthful striker. You have to have experience, poise, and seasoning. Paul Daly has that. Anderson Silva has that. So it's very likely he's going to get to him. It's very likely he's going to put some pressure on him. The question is, can he maintain it? And can he not fall into any traps that, that allow MVP to counter him big and put his lights out? And I think he can. I think he's got the skill to. Let me ask you this. One last question about this fight here. If Paul Daly goes out there and gets starched, like I say, he gets knocked out, gets knocked out badly, um, kind of the way Paul Daly did Lorenz Larkin, how badly does this impact Daly, not, excuse me, um, MVP's stock? Me, in my opinion, as I've kind of been thinking about this fight and looking at looking at its development recently, I'm beginning to question what MVP's long-term value is to Bellator even to begin with. Uh, yeah, he gets out there and he does funny stuff, like he clips guys and he rolls the Pokemon ball out there, but is he really a long-term investment? In my opinion, looking at this card and looking at the way she's promoting herself, Valerie Laredo, with her zero MMA professional fights may be a bigger value prospect to Bellator long-term than MVP is. So if MVP goes out there and gets starched, how how, how would this impact his long-term value with the promotion? It really just, it makes their whole development program look like a sham. It makes him look like a sham. Him and, him and Steven Thompson came into MMA in, in a similar time frame. And you look where Steven Thompson, how he's been moved, how he's progressed, the level of fighter he's faced, and you look at where MVP is, MVP's just now fighting guys that Steven Thompson was fighting within, what, his sixth, seventh, eighth fight, his second or third fight in the UFC. Their development has been handled completely different, and you have to wonder, why is that? Is it because the UFC is bad at development? Possibly. I've never liked their development. 
or is it because they had a fighter who they felt was better prepared and more able to compete at the highest levels? We still know nothing about MVP as a fighter. We really don't know if he can grapple. We don't really know if he can wrestle. We don't really know how he handles anybody with any competency as a striker. So if he gets exposed, it's going to look like he just basically was being built up by Delator and, and protected. I mean, him just getting starched, if he puts on a competitive fight back and forth and there, he shows some grit, he shows some skill, that's different. But if he goes out and just gets starched round one, it just calls him to question Bellator's signings. It calls him to question Bellator's development. It calls him to question the legitimacy of his any of his wins because this will be the first test he's had, and he's had so many years to build up to this. How are you not more prepared? How do you not shore up the holes in your game? How have you not prepared, put yourself in position to beat the best guy you've ever faced? This is pretty much his whole career moving forward. A loss here doesn't like end it. He can keep on fighting, but he's going to have to put two or three, four or five wins together before anybody takes him seriously on any level. And once he gets, if he gets starched, you can't move him back down. You just got to keep giving him tough fights and you just show that he couldn't win one. This is a really risky proposition for him and for Bellator because they've given him a lot of leeway in what he does and how, who he fights and when he fights. And if he doesn't perform, this is, this is bad. It, it's, it's worse than, than, um, Aaron Pico, because at least Aaron Pico was testing himself and forcing fights with more experienced, bigger, talented guys. Uh, MVP's seemingly been trying to duck around the biggest challenges in his division. And now he's pretty much in a position where he has to fight them. So one thing I will say is that if MVP gets starched, I don't think it calls into Bellator's entire developmental I think they did a good job. They're doing a good job with Ed Roof. They're doing a good job with Neiman Gracie. Um, they're doing a good job. Or they did a good job with Bubba Jenkins. Uh, there are other examples of guys that they've done good jobs with bringing them up. I don't think MVP is a, getting blown out is a is a testament to all of that not being right. But I do think it really does cause some questioning around him from start to finish. But I think that that questioning is already there. Um, I think that questioning is already growing. That why is it, why isn't he, isn't he moving up the ladder and facing more tough tougher uh, uh, opponents? So I think that that questioning is already coming in, into play. Yeah, the questions are there, but just like when people question Conor McGregor, they're like, "Well, he's a fake. He's a phony. What if he have an unfavorable matchup?" When when he got unfavorable matchups or he faced all time greats, he performed. So if he would if he would have got smoked by Chad Mendez, it would have all come down. If he would have got smoked by Jose Aldo, it would have all come down. Th those wins enabled him to absorb that Nate Diaz loss a little bit better. Even Stephen Thompson, he lost to Matt Brown, and then he came back and he worked his way back up and he started beating top level guys again. We've never seen anything from from um, MVP, and if he loses this fight, he's going to have to win three or four fights just to be taken seriously again. It's just it's just the way it is. He hasn't accomplished anything. He hasn't really face guys of any note or any real caliber of athleticism, he, he's basically been protected. I mean, look at some of these matchups in these first rounds, and he's getting, he's getting a favorable style matchup. He's getting a guy who's not in his prime, a guy who's a striker, a guy who's not as durable, and a guy who's experienced this season, but a guy who's not what he used to be. You know, he didn't get put in with a Gracie or a Ruth. He didn't get put in with those kind of guys right off the bat. He could have got put in with a John Fitch. Would have been a nightmare matchup for him but they're trying to give him the best opportunity to succeed, which I understand, which I don't kind of understand because I don't know how big a draw he is anyways, but I understand what they're trying to do, but there's just so many holes in his resume right now. And there's been guys who've been in MMA, MMA as long or longer than him, and they've, they've already taken that step. So it makes you wonder. If he wins, then it, he was moved right. He was handled appropriately. If he loses, it just looks like you were hiding him. 
there's no other way to say it, but you were hiding him. He has to win this fight or he has to make it super competitive. But if he just gets blown out, it's going to be hard to justify his, his last couple years of fighting. Can't really disagree with you there. So let's look. Let's look at some other uh, the other bouts on this card because I don't want to stick too much time on Bellator 216. Let's talk about the Vitaly Minikov Czech Congo fight as a co-main event. Do you think that this is a real number one contender? I think it's a better number one contenders fight for Minikov because you know he is a former champion that walked away from holding uh, the Bellator heavyweight title. Do you think either one of these guys poses a, a, a real threat to uh, to Ryan Bader? Well, all these guys pose a threat to him just because they're they're heavyweights, they're big, they're strong, and they they can end a fight at any point. Bader's never been the most durable guy, and against a heavyweight who can hit him, I have to imagine that he's going to get rocked, if not stopped again. It's it's really that that simple. Um, the only problem is both these guys have been out wrestled and out hustled by smaller guys who can wrestle. Uh, Chet Congo was decisively out-hustled by King Mo. And uh, Minikov, Minikov's actually been pretty consistent, but he hasn't been super active, which is another deficit of being a heavyweight. You're, b- being inactive heavyweight doesn't help anybody. But also, Minikov's just not an exciting kind of fighter. He's not the kind of person that draws eyes. There's not a real big benefit for Bader beating him, so maybe Bader doesn't want to take that fight. Bader's in the driver's seat, and you're looking for fights that are interesting and make you money. All the fights versus the heavyweights are interesting, but not, none of them are really interesting to the casual fan. And if Bader's not going to get paid, I don't believe he takes that risk. Unless he's paid very well or he thinks he's going to do something for his career. Beating Fedor does something. Beating Mitrion in the tournament, beating King Mo, that does something. Beating Minikov or beating Czech Congo, mm, I don't really know what that does for him. I think that he is going to. I, I think he is going to get paid regardless of the fact. I think he is being squared away by that promotion pretty well. Um, my only concern is I, I do think that he can continue to uh, dominate this group and dominate this group pretty pretty well. So um, it'll be intriguing to see what what's really next for him in this division as a whole. So yeah, it, it, I, I don't know. I think there's getting paid. There's getting paid like Conor McGregor makes money regardless of whoever he regardless of who he fights. He always makes money, but he makes money, money versus certain people. And that's why he picks and chooses. He fights Cowboy. That's a lot of money. He fights Dustin Poirier. He still gets paid a lot. Not quite as much as if he gets paid if he fights a name or has a certain matchup. And I think Bader's thinking of those sort of things right now. OK, I can ride with that. Um, let's talk about Eric Silva. He's making his return to uh, the fight space as he is facing Yaroslav. I can't pronounce this guy's name. I'm not even going to try. He's fight. He's facing a 20 and 0 prospect coming in, into the uh, into the fight game. Eric Silva. Um, man, this guy. Like, what are your thoughts about this? I had. He, off the radar. I think he, he's lost. Let's see how many fights he's lost in a row. I mean, he... We, we, we remember that big fight he had against uh, John Fitch. Uh, he, I remember the fight against Matt Brown. That was awful. That was yeah, so, so starts, much punishment. He starts Charlie Brenneman, and he was put on the fast track. He almost beat John Fitch, but from there it went straight downhill. He's Kind of, he hasn't done as bad as I thought, exchanging a lot of wins and, and losses. He's gone one and one a couple times, and he's he's dropped 
he's won two and dropped two. So he's kind of gone back and forth. Um, what are your thoughts about him? Is he done? Is he washed? Or are we going to see him go through a resurgence of, of sorts uh, within the um, within the, the Bellator cage? And you're, well, you're Bellator, to get that squared, squared away too. Bellator, there's always a rehab because they have a lo- lower level of fighter. Outside of the top five or seven, most of those guys are, are – pretty one-dimensional or pretty limited athletically. So he's going to have every opportunity to rehab his image, get some momentum. The question is, how much does he have left? I don't think he – I think Eric Silva technically and strategically has looked a lot better in his last couple of fights. The problem is his athleticism has dropped off. And I don't know if it's because of outside influences or t- just the number of beatings he's taken and the weight cuts and, and different things of that nature, that's what's taking it. But he's not as big an athlete as he used to be. He's not as durable an athlete as he used to be. If he still had his athleticism and his durability, he'd still be in the UFC right now because right now he's finally learned how to fight and fight with some poise and discipline and some structure instead of relying on big spots of offense and big explosive movements. But now he doesn't have that athleticism or that durability to fill in the gaps when he does make a mistake. Now when he makes a mistake, the whole fight falls apart. Um, the guy he's facing, I'm sure they're trying to give him a soft touch because Eric Silva's a good-looking dude still. He has an exciting style. He has a look. He has a certain amount of charisma. So they're hoping they can kind of build him up and either put him in a position where he can be a world champ or at least have him face one of their name guys and get beat after you kind of get him some momentum to further justify your fighter. Um, I don't think he's washed. I just don't think he's physically as dominant as he used to be. And, and for a guy who who still makes mistakes. He's made, he makes a lot less, but he still makes big mistakes. It, it's pretty much, he has no margin for error at this point. And uh, once you get past the certain level of fighter, um, when you have no margin for error, you're, you're pretty much just guaranteeing yourself a loss. There has to be some margin of error when you fight. And, and at this stage, he, he doesn't have any. The only thing that's going to save him is he, he's most likely going to be fighting a guy who's a level and a half or two levels below what he's used to facing. So he should be able to use experience and some, some smart, some timely grappling and very defensively responsible and defensively cautious striking. And he should be able to maybe get a stoppage, maybe eke out a win. But once again, he has no room for error. He gets caught on the ground, ground and pound. He leaves his hands too low. He overcommits on a shot and it's over for him. It's crazy how one or two beatings can immediately, can immediately change some um, someone's career and someone's trajectory. And it definitely happened to him as he continued to uh, take damage over the year, over, over the years. And after that big fight he had with um, John Fitch back years ago. Uh, the only other person I wanted to talk about was Valerie Lareda. And I wanted to talk about her because... Yeah, she's 0-0 coming into this fight here, but I don't know if you've been following her closely from a social media standpoint, but she's got this self-promotion game down. Um, She's doing things that speak to the largely male demographic of mixed martial arts. I'll put it that way. And I don't quite know how I feel about that, man. Like, I, I get it. I get that you're doing what's necessary to kind of put yourself in a position to make the big to make the big money and to make like major opportunities. I get what she's doing, but it just it's it doesn't speak to me 
the same way it does other individuals. And I think it's just, I think it's just unfortunate that that's still where we are when it comes to MMA. I don't know. It's, I mean, to be quite honest, <laughs> I, I get the, I get the point, and I don't think people should have to do. I get the point, but I'm one of those people who believes everybody should take every opportunity to do whatever they have to do. And if you, I understand the integrity, I understand the way it should be, but we can't deal in the way it should be and the way it could be. You have to deal with reality. There's nothing stopping you from ever saying, I'm not going to be active on social media. I'm not going to post these pictures. I'm not going to be this way. I'm not going to be that way. That's fine. Just take what comes with it. There's never been a sport. There's never been a job where just doing your job and doing the bare minimum has gotten you into the highest position possible. Never. You've always had to go to appointments, show up to every meeting, stay late, go early, um, be approachable. You've always had to go outside your comfort zone to, to re really achieve in anything. Politics, business, music, um, movies, acting. I don't know a career field where you just do what you do and you become not just well-paid or, or famous or successful, but transcendently successful. That never happened. Tom Brady wasn't the biggest quarterback star in NFL. He won a bunch of Super Bowls. Peyton Manning was. Because Peyton Manning went on, Super, went on Saturday Night Live and did all these shows. And, and another point, and I'm not trying to question anybody, but sometimes people say that, you know, people are forced to do things they, they don't want to, to to be famous. I think Conor McGregor does what he does because that's who he is. I think Floyd Mayweather does what he does because that's part of who he is. You want to go to pro wrestling? I think part of the rock shtick is who he is as a person. And there might be something to be said about some of the women who play up certain aspects. That just might be their care, their personality. They might, they might like it. It might just be as much, much for them as it is for being successful. Like, hey, I can get more fans and get more attention by playing up certain aspects of myself. I was going to play up these aspects of myself anyways. And now it's going to help my career. Nobody ever seems to ever address that part. Just like some girls don't want to dress up and don't want to be sexy and don't want to be approachable and don't want to be flirty or laughy, or whatever. There's some who do. Just like there's certain male fighters who like to play up their looks and their charm and their nice watches and their nice clothes. And some like to play up being a badass. Some like to play up that they're, you know, I do my job and I go home. Everybody has an angle. Uriah Faber had one. Felice Herrick has one. Anderson Silva has one. Everybody has an angle. GSP has one. He's the professional, smooth, tie and suit kind of guy. Everybody has an angle. So maybe this is just an angle she likes. Maybe she likes it. Maybe she doesn't mind it. Maybe she's not being forced to do anything. I don't know that Paige Van Zandt is forced to do things. I don't know that Rachel Ostevich was forced to do things. They just might like it. That just, just, that, that just might be who they are. I don't think it's fair that people always assume they're forced to do these things to get fans. They might just not care, and it just might be what they like to do. Some athletes and some actors like to take pictures and see themselves in different pictures in different light. They like that stuff. They really do. It's kind of biased that we assume they're only one way to be represented. That Nobody talks about that. Well, I don't, I'm not a girly girl. That's cool, but she is. So why are we hating on her? She's just doing it for fans. Maybe that's just how, she, maybe that's just who she is. You ever assume that? It's kind of rude to make the assumption one way, but not make it the other. That's just how I look at it. I'm not going to disagree with you too much there. Um, I just think it's interesting that Bellator, when it comes to a lot of their women fighters and a lot of the ones that they promote, just like the UFC, they have a very, it's very clear and it's very. Indicative. Oh no, that is true. I talked to managers. I talked to managers about that. I asked them, "Why don't you have more of your fighters in here?" And I'm not gonna, not gonna tell you who the manager is. Told me, but he's like, "Yeah, they said they want a girl. Yeah, she can be able to fight, but we want a very specific look." And I was like, "Are you joking?" He's like, "No. If if they weren't so strict on that, I could get a lot of girls in there." 
but they're very particular. So yeah, I understand. I understand that point. I'm just saying that some girls, you know, some girls like to do that. Some want to be a tom tomboy. Some want to just dress up, and be cute, and be sexy, and kick ass in a cage. It's possible. True. True. So let's turn our focus over to UFC uh, on ESPN One. This is the first big card on the new flagship um, network for the promotion, and they kind of, and they they've done some great work here. Um, I'm looking to a lot. I'm looking forward to a lot of different pieces of this card, and we have quite a bit to talk about. The biggest thing, obviously, is the return of Kane Velasquez, former two-time UFC heavyweight champion, his first fight since 2016 in nearly three years. I mean, if we look back to when the organization got on Fox back in 2011, which was eight years ago. He's had one, two, three, four, five. He's had six fights, six fights in eight years. Uh, and interesting enough, the last, so he fought twice in 2012, 20, fought twice in 2013, once in 2015, and once in 2016. Uh, 2016. What, what, what should we expect here? Velasquez is 36 years old. Coming back from multiple injuries, um, struggles to, to stay healthy. What should we expect here from a former two-time heavyweight champion? Has the division passed him by, or was he so great? Is he so great that he should still be able to excel in a fight that is um, such as this one? The thing is, stylistically, his style still works. His low, his his single leg takedowns. His activity, his pressure, his volume, his ability to kind of transition from, even though it's not really clean or technical, his ability to transition from strikes into clinches, into takedown attempts, his ability to physically beat up guys and wear them down and break them down, his his style and who he is as a fighter still works. The issue is, does his physicality work? Does his own physical physicality and his athleticism work at a level that allows him to be effective with that fight style consistently. Cain Velasquez has never been a great defensive fighter. He has never been a great offensive fighter. When I mean great, I mean like technically where he can, he throws sharp strikes. His takedowns are just so crisp and so clean. He just blows it with you for a double A. He can chain takedowns together. He's so smooth on the top looking for submissions or transitioning positions to get ground and pound. That's not Cain Velasquez. He's never been that guy. He's, ne he's never been that guy. I don't care what anybody tells me. I talk to people who train with them. I talk to people who know him. I talk to other World-class wrestlers, he ain't that guy. He is a guy with a very specific skill set, but it, what he had is durability, physicality, and ability to fight at a very, set a high pace. My rule, you don't fight at a pace you can't set, you can't maintain, or you can't build on. Not only does Kane fight at a pace higher than everybody, he can maintain it, and if you even think about fighting back, he ramps it up and just blows you out of the cage. But Kane has been routinely injured, and in his last couple of fights, he has, never, he has not shown the durability nor has he shown the physicality, nor has he shown the conditioning necessary to enact the fight style that he has. And if he doesn't have any one of those things, in fact, in, in the entirety of his career, if, if Cain Velasquez was 10% less durable, 10% less cardio-based, and 10% less physical, he wouldn't have had half the wins he's had already. He would not have. He gets hit a lot, entering and exiting. He gets a bunch of his takedowns. He has a fight for a lot of them. He doesn't, he, he very rarely just gets clean, crisp takedowns. And to be quite honest, I don't even remember that his control was being particularly great. 
even though he's beating the hell out of JDS for five rounds and three rounds, he still found a way to get back up. He still found a way to stuff and fight off takedowns in multiple occasions. So does his style work? Sure. Does his approach work? Sure. I don't know if it works with the shell, the physical shell that he's become now. He wasn't the greatest athlete before, and he's probably, I don't know, 25, 35% worse now. And if he can't take if he if he can't take really crisp shots or his defense and his overall striking hasn't cleaned up a whole lot, I don't see how he wins this fight. I don't see how he would be a force in the heavyweight division right now because a lot of it is just based on his ability to take you down and run you out of the ring. I don't know that he's capable of doing that anymore. And the worst part about it is to fight with that style, you have to train a certain way. And when you train a certain way, it not just shortens your career, it also guarantees you're going to have injuries. You have to train at a certain intensity to maintain that pace and that physicality. That There's a price for that. There's a high price for that. There's a reason why AKA guys get injured so often. So strategically, yes, his style still works greatly, even technically. But as far as what he can bring to the table, no, I don't think he'd be much of a force in the, in the heavyweight division right now as it stands. What's very interesting to me is that you are picking Nganu in this fight here because I feel like most people are leaning towards Kane. And so what's interesting is people are leaning toward Kane in a way that they're making it sound like it's going to go a lot like that fight he had against uh, Bigfoot Silva years ago. But I think the piece, the main piece of that is that those fights were years ago and that's not the same situation that we're facing today. What is Ngannou's path to victory here? Is is it a foregone foregone conclusion that he'll he's going to get blown out, or is this a situation where we can all be uh, surprised? If you can guarantee me that Kane was the Kane of old, stylistically his style works. He goes for the t- single leg. He might have to fight for it, but he's used to chasing. He's used to wearing you out, defending the takedown, eventually getting you down, and then unleashing hell on you on the ground. Even if you get back up, you're taking a huge beating and getting back up. He's forcing you to cage, beating you up, making you defend takedowns and get you down again and repeats, repeats it all over again. If you can tell me the Kane was in his prime physically, stylistically, it's a tough match for Ngano. Ngano's not a great defensive wrestler. He's not a f- great defensive grappler. He, a lot of his success comes off of basic wrestling defenses. He can't chain together takedown defenses, but he can, has enough athleticism and, so- and size to stuff one and throw you off. If you get taken out, he can explode up and get back up to his feet. It's not real technical. It's not real sharp. And the reason that works, it's like uh, Ryan Bader was saying in an interview. Some, sometimes when you're facing a better wrestler, the goal isn't to wrestle them. If you have a physical advantage or a size advantage, use that to get back up. Because the minute, minute you make it technical, I can out-technique you. Even if I'm not the greatest wrestler in the world, you're not a wrestler at all. So I can just ride you out. That's a mistake Matt Mitrio made against Vader. It's a possible mistake Ngannou can make against Kane, but Ngannou's not that guy. He explodes up, gets back to his feet, starts looking for his counters. The problem is Kane isn't what he used to be physically. That's a fact. And secondly, another way this fight could go, everybody talks about what Kane did to Bigfoot. I'll tell you about a fight where Kane was prime Kane, super aggressive, super physical, super durable. And the UFC went to a new network for their first big fight when he fought JDS. JDS isn't exactly like Ngannou, but there's shades of this fight. What was JDS? A dynamic, athletic, but limited striker with accuracy, good counterability, and could explode into shots and put people out with one shot. What would be Ngannou? An athletic, big, strong guy who with limited strikings, who can end a fight with one shot due to his explosiveness and physical, physical athleticism. Correct? What happened when they fought the first time? Kane got 
murked. First shot, touchdown, put him out. It was a, one of the shortest championship fights in the history. We were thinking we were going to get a war. It was over in like, what, a minute, 45 seconds, something of that nature? That could very well happen again in this fight because that was Kane in, in his prime. This isn't Kane in his prime, and it still came with the same holes that he had before. I'm not saying he can't have improved, but he hasn't been active at all. He hasn't fought, and it's hard for me to bet on a guy who not just was recovered from injuries, but hasn't fought in three years and say that he's going to come in against an active heavyweight who's a better athlete, who at this stage is more durable, and this stage has fought, what, two of the three best guys in division in the world recently? It's really hard for me to think that Kane's going to come in here and go back to being the old Kane. If he can, stylistically, he should win this fight. But I don't think he is. And there's so many. And the thing about Nganu is Nganu is a counter guy. He looks for counters. He will punch with you. He won't wait till you punch and then fire back. He'll punch with you. I don't know that Kane's striking is good enough to set up clean takedown attempts. Kane can't afford to just chase takedowns because Nganu is the kind of guy who creates space and just looks for the counter. There's a lot of ways to attack Nganu, and Kane's capable of attacking him in all those ways, but he'd have to be able to do so round after round with phys- with the same level of intensity and be able to ratchet it up. Because we know that Nganu can hang for five rounds. He did the same with he did it, he did with Stipe. I don't know that Kane has that extra gear anymore. I've never been sold on his chin, and his offensive and defensive striking has always made him him, him a possibility to be knocked out. Happened against Werdum. Having against JDS, he's not a hard guy to find. And I think Ngannou's going to find him. Now, if he gets through those rounds and he can do what he does as prime came, Ngannou's in trouble. I just don't think he's capable of doing that anymore. And I think it's hard to bet him when he hasn't had a fight or been punched in the face in, what, three years? Three years, nearly. Let me ask you this. Does this fight go the full three rounds? <sighs> I'm going to say hell no. I if Kane comes to fight, I don't think it does. If Kane is going to try and fight at range and and be careful and be smart, it's possible. I still don't think he does because I don't think he's defensively good enough or athletically. But um, no, I, it probably doesn't. Unless Kane has just turned into a whole nother fighter in the past couple years somehow. And, and if he has, then it, I'm going to take back every bad word I said about AKA. Like I said, there's ways for him to win this. I just don't know that he's physically capable of executing those ways anymore. Okay, we'll see how it goes. We'll definitely see how that uh, fight shapes itself out. Um, I wanted to also talk about on this card. There's so much to kind of really focus on as we look at, at this fight here. Let's talk about the co-main event. Uh, Paul Felder and James Vick. I can't. I was talking to my friend Andrew da- uh, Davis, who does some of the stats over at ESPN. Uh, he and I used to work together, and I am really looking at Felder to kind of style on Vic in this fight here. I don't see a path, a real path of victory for James. I think James is one of those guys who, and I hate to use the term gatekeeper, but he's one of those guys who does great until he faces off against uh, upper echelon talent. We saw that with um, who was the guy that put him away last last fight, Justin uh, Justin Gucci. We saw that there. Paul Felder, I think Paul Felder is one of those guys who also struggles, but he struggles against the the best of the best. I mean, he there are some people who thought he beat Edson Barbosa. So, and then you saw what he just did to Charles um, Oliveira last time out. What are your thoughts about this fight here, and who are you leaning towards picking in what is going to be a hell of a striking fight? Um, I like Paul Felder. He's tough. He's actually got a better all round skill set than people 
would admit a lot of people people like to put him in that striking category and he's he's dynamic he, he's got a good sense and comfort to a certain certain point I haven't seen Paul Felder do particularly great when facing other strikers. When he faced what we consider top-end strikers. He fought Edson Barboza. That was a pretty clear win for Edson. He fought Ross Pearson. And if I recall correctly, even it was a close fight, but it was a pretty clear win for Ross Pearson. Both of these guys were comp- competent, skillful, seasoned strikers. At least yeah, I think the, the Pearson fight was uh, closer than, than the Barboza yeah. one. It, it was closer, but given Paul Felder's reputation as this dynamic striker, you would figure a guy who's not good with kick defense and not good with kick counters like Pearson would have got wiped off the face of the earth by, by Felder. But Felder had a lot of time, hard time finding his spacing, finding his timing, even finding Pearson with more than one shot at a time. Pearson, it was competitive, but he wasn't able to hit Pearson the way he wanted to, and Pearson was able to hit him a lot the way he wanted to, which is Felder's very, t- dur- very durable and doesn't get scared off very much. So he's going to keep on applying pressure and keep on throwing those shots. But he wasn't nearly as efficient as I would have liked, nor defensively responsible. Felder's biggest advantage is he has an all-round skill set that he can set the table to use with his striking. I think Vic's length is still a problem because Vic likes to kick. He likes to kick a lot. And his kicking length is from the spots you're not used to guys being able to kick you from, he can kick you from. From the spots you're not used to guys being able to kick you from, he can punch you from. That makes an adjustment on how you approach him. You might want to walk him down, but usually you have to take three steps before you're in danger of getting hit. You take a, a half step, bam, you get hit with a jab. You take a quarter step, bam, you're getting hit with a kick. So your defense on the way in has to be a little bit sharper, and your activity, once you get in, has to be so much higher because it's so easy for him to reestablish distance. The, only, the question I have is, can Paul Felder apply enough pressure to get Vic back to the fence Put the hands on him, take him down, whatever you choose to do. But can he put him in the positions where James Vick will expose himself? Because if you can't consistently, continuously create a certain amount of pressure and put a certain amount of volume on Vick, Vick might take a, a little while to get started. But once he gets started, he will slowly just pick his pick you apart with long jabs, um, decent but not great footwork, and long kicks. He's done it multiple times. He's a slow starter. But if he gets past that slow start, he usually finds the spacing, finds his rhythm, starts taking guys apart. The best time to get him is early. The best time to score those points is early. Can Felder get in the way he needs to and, and, and score those points? He's not a big explosive guy. He's more of a stalker. He's got heavy feet, and he tends to throw series of strikes instead of combinations. So I, I don't know I don't know that he's going to be able to do that. If he can, yeah, he wins, and he wins, he wins decisively. But the question is, can he? Because I haven't seen that from Paul Felder very often. Usually, when he's looked good, it's been guys coming after him, and he's he, he starts then he backs them up and starts oh, taking over. I don't know how he faces against a guy who's not trying to be hit or not trying to stay in the range he wants to make him work at. Most mixed martial arts, he's in the middle, one guy pushes the other guy back. That guy, that guy results, gives up, and decides I'm going to be defensive. James Vick wants to maintain that range and control the pace. So it's just a matter of question. Can he navigate that distance? Can he put enough pressure on Vic to make him expose himself? Because once you put pressure on Vic, Vic, his chin goes up. He starts getting wide and gets a little jittery. But you have to be able to put a certain kind of pressure on him. I'm not sure that Paul Felder can. So let me ask you this. What is James Vic's ceiling? Is, is he someone that's a real contender? He has a record that says he is. He talks like he is. But what is his ceiling? How far are we going to see him go? 
he's not a, he's not a real contender. He I don't think he's a good enough athlete. I don't think his chin's there, and he depends more on his length than actual technical skills to to provide provide line to defense and offense. If he was a normal size fighter, normal height, fighting the same way he fights, he get knocked out every fight. He relies heavily on his length to navigate defense and navigate offense for him. He depends on he uses his physical build and his traits as a crutch to make up for a lack of finer skill in his game. And he gets exposed. Even with these advantages, he still gets rocked in almost every fight. Almost every fight, he's went on the win streak. First round, he is getting his ass kicked. Trinaldo beat the fuck up. Joe Duffy beat the fuck up. Every fight he's been in, he's getting beat the fuck up in the first round. He, he, he navigates it and eventually makes an adjustment. But early on, he's so vulnerable. And he's just not very durable. And he's not very powerful. Um, he's the best of the rest. He's probably like a guy who, if you, you can find the right matchups, you can probably get him to a title shot, maybe. But once he starts facing those elite guys or those better-than-average guys, he just starts getting beat up. He can't beat Poirier. He can't beat Gaethje. He can't beat McGregor. He can't beat Khabib. He can't beat Ferguson. I don't know that he can beat Felder either. So if he can't beat the elite guys, where does that leave him at? Uh, second, yep. third-tier fighter. I, like I said, again, I hate to use that term. Gatekeeper. Uh, we have another. We have an important women's fight here. Cynthia Calvi, Calvi, Calvillo, Calvillo. Excuse me. There you go. You, you got to pronounce it with the J. Is fighting um, Courtney Casey. Uh, yeah, this is a pretty big fight here because Cynthia is looking to rebound, and uh, she. I mean, she was on a pretty hot streak until she ran into Carla Esparza. Courtney Casey. She's a, a tough out for anyone in, in this division. Talk to me about this fight here, man. Courtney Casey is a good fighter who actually has lost three fights based not on the lack of skill, not on the lack of physical tools. She lost because she has the worst cage IQ in in women's mixed martial arts and possibly the worst cage IQ in mixed martial arts, period. Seriously. She it's this as simple as this. Courtney Casey will let you take her down and instead of getting back up, will hunt and search for submissions. While somebody's grinding on her and throwing strikes and will lose a fight just because she won't get back up because she feels she's close to a submission, which she may get with two seconds left in the round that nobody's going to tap out to. But most likely she's just going to get worked over and controlled to a decision loss. She has no awareness of the ebb and flow in a fight. And she beat Angela Hill, but Angela Hill's cage IQ isn't terribly much better than Courtney Casey's. I believe she fights in the wrong style, which allowed Courtney Casey to take take advantage of the whole defensive holes in her game as a result. Casey's big. She's strong. She's physical. She's a good, not great grappler. She's a functional, but not technical striker who doesn't use her physical attributes in a manner that best suit her, which is why she lost to Michelle Watterson. Got pushed around, taken down and controlled by Michelle Watterson. That's inexcusable. That shouldn't happen. Same thing with Jojo Calderwood. Had her on the rocks, got taken down and controlled by Jojo Calderwood. That shouldn't have happened. She just, she just, she does not fight to her strength. She does not fight with an awareness of what her, her opponent is doing and what she needs to do to counter it. She's very much like Justin Kish in this act, in this, in this habit. The thing that's going to save her is that Cavio isn't very well developed. She has the right idea, counters, jabs, long strikes, moving around, but technically she's not very sharp defensively, and she's pretty basic offensively. The reason she lost to Carla Esparza is because she kept throwing the same strike. She kept throwing the same thing. Carla knew everything that was coming in. She knew exactly what Cynthia was going to do. And all she had to do was punch with her, put some pressure on her, and not let Cynthia 
get the space she wanted to have in the fight. It's really that simple. Cynthia Calvillo has not gotten better since she stepped her first foot in the cage in the UFC. In that last fight, she wasn't facing an opponent with enough athleticism, size, or skill to test her. This is going to be her first test since coming back from her suspension. And it's going to be an indictment on Team Alpha Male, if she's still with them, if she hasn't improved at all. Because she's had the suspension, she's had a long break outside of that because she had to prepare for a fight. If she comes out fighting the same way, then that tells you all you need to know about them. Because she's a good athlete, not a great one. She's a good wrestler, not a great one. Decent, probably. She's a good grappler, not a great one. It's all going to come down to, has she expanded her skills? Does she have a sense of awareness in the cage? And does she have enough growth that she can change up her combinations, change up her strikes, change up her entries, change up her setups? Because she's doing the same thing she's always doing. Even though she's facing a girl who clearly finds a way to lose fights, she will get out-hustled, she will get bullied, and she will lose the decision to Courtney Casey. And that's a hard thing to do. What, so, hmm, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely, you, you got pretty passionate there about that situation. I, I, I'm glad that this fight is getting the prime placement that it's getting because I've always thought that Cynthia is a intriguing, um, she's an intriguing personality for the UFC. They want to kind of brand her as the women's version of the Diaz brothers, and I get that. But They set her up to be a star. They, yeah, they set did. her up. That Carlos Farza fight was her showcase fight against a former champion who has a similar style to you. You're bigger, you're stronger, you're younger, you're on the way up. And she got complete, and mind you, I wrote a four-part article breaking down her game. I won't say that Carlos Farza's camps saw it, but I've been told they might have. And she just got beat. She had no variation. She had shown no, and she had shown one bit of growth in her combinations and her setups or the strike she was using, she was using the same pattern. She's fought the same way in all four of her fights. It is, it is, there's no growth in it. And you can't fight a veteran, a seasoned veteran, who has some kind of pride in professionalism and think you're going to get by winning, doing the same thing you did to beat Amanda Bobby Cooper. That's just not going to happen. She got cocky, she hadn't improved, and she got exposed. That, that's really all there's to it. And, she's, and the UFC wants her to be big. They want that access to the Hispanic market. They want it. And they gave her an opportunity to go and take it. And she ruined it. I don't care if you think Carla won or not. That performance earned her a loss anyways. She wasn't prepared to fight somebody who was not going to let her do what she wanted to. She wasn't prepared to fight somebody who was prepared to fight her. And she got exposed for it. And now she's taking a step back. And I don't know that there's a guarantee that she wins this fight either. The only thing that might bail her out is that Courtney Casey likes to make the wrong decisions in fights. If Courtney Casey had be better cage IQ, Courtney Casey might be a, a champion right now. She really might be. There's only been one fight where she's actually been outskilled in when she fought Claudia Gedalia. All her other fights have just been bad decision making. I'm going to fight Carla Fleece Herrig. I'm going to throw hooks with a girl who throws the best hooks in the division. Okay, she keeps hitting me first, but I'm going to keep throwing these same hooks. I'm not going to mix in a takedown. I'm not going to use a long front kick. I'm not going to use any fakes. I'm going to stand right in front of her, throw the same combination, get hit in the face first, and keep on doing it, and then complain that I lost the fight at the end. I'm going to let Michelle Waterson, who should be fighting an atom weight, take me down, knock me down, and then complain that I was controlling the fight. I would have finished her if there were three more seconds left. Yeah, you would have, but there weren't, and you lost. I'm going to have JoJo Calderwood on her heels, ready to be finished, let her work her way back into the fight, and then get taken down repeatedly by a striker and controlled to a decision loss. 
These are the kind of things I'm talking about. And her cage IQ has not improved one bit from when she first got into this, into this, into the UFC. So there's going to have to be adjustments. On, whoever has made the most growth between these two is going to be the one who wins this, to be quite honest, because Casey's going to have to show some poise and awareness. Cynthia Cavill is going to have to show more than that, than that I'm going to fight off my back foot, throw jabs, and throw long kicks. That's not going to get it this time. She's going to have to show something else to win this fight. And if one of them doesn't show something else, whoever doesn't show something else is going to be the one to lose. And whoever loses this fight is taking a huge setback. Courtney Casey can't afford to lose this fight. To be quite honest, Cynthia Cavill has only lost one. She could have lost that JoJo fight too. She should have lost to Pearl Gonzalez, but she didn't. She can't afford to lose this fight either. She's been out of the spotlight. She had an easy win. She can't afford to lose this fight, especially coming off and not making weight in her last one. So this is very important for both of them. It's very important for the division. True, true. All good analysis there. Um, I think Cynthia was in that position, like you pointed out earlier. It's probably going over to Tatiana Suarez now. Um, yep. but she got it, the job done. Yeah, because she got the job done. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this uh, fight here. The next fight I want to talk about, my boy Ice Cream Crone Gracie is facing off against Alice Caceres. Crone Gracie has a level of jiu-jitsu that we have not seen yet in the, the UFC. I mean, we've seen well, that's not true, because Damian Maya is out there doing a the damn thing, and I, and I do think that Damian Maya probably were doing are the two guys that are on the same level when it comes to grappling as Chrome. Same thing with Mackenzie Dern, but she hasn't really showcased her jujitsu yet. But hasn't we have consistently. So she hasn't shown the ability to make weight consistently either. Yeah, there, there, there's that. That's another conversation. The scales tapped her out a bunch of times. That's another conversation for another show. But he's facing off against Alex Caceres, who is. I mean, Alex Caceres is a vet. I mean, he's been here for a long time. We forget about, I think he's he, he's had 19 fights in the UFC. This will be his 20th fight for the promotion. I don't know how familiar you are with Crohn's uh, jiu-jitsu and with him as a fighter, per se. He hasn't fought since 2016. What are your thoughts about this fight here, and what do you expect to see? My opinion, I, I, I think we're going to see some slick uh, jiu-jitsu, some, some slick back takes, but what are your thoughts uh, about this fight? Uh, Gracie's being given this fight as a test to see how good he is. Um, it's clear Caceres is now a gatekeeper. He's a guy with experience, a guy with a unique style as far as his defense and his 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 uh, unorthodox striking, esoteric striking. Uses a lot of the spinning stuff, the the kung fu hands, the weird angles, the head movement, the slips and counters with kicks. You know, he he mixes in a lot of striking styles. has has a unique rhythm and approach to it, and he has a good enough grappling game and a good enough defensive wrestling game that unless that allows him to is allowed him to compete with guys he really shouldn't have been able to compete with your favor being one of them so this is really a test to see where crone where crone's at if he loses the fight it isn't a crushing loss because you're facing a guy who's faced some of the best in the world and has held his own even in wins or losses he's performed adequately if not very well if he if crone beats him that's the, where the concern should be because the question is, if the UFC say, oh, he beat this guy with all this experience, let's put him in against somebody in the top 10. I don't think they do that, but it's possible they, they do. Um, Caceres has been tapped by lesser stri- lesser grapplers. Jason Knight submitted him very, very decisively, and other guys have as well. The biggest issue is, can Kron get him to the ground? And I don't know, I don't know his striking is good enough. 
at his best, Jason Caceres is very defensively sound. He's very hard guy to find, get your spacing on. He's very hard guy to find his rhythm on. He throws a lot of offbeat counters, a lot of offbeat leads, and he'll throw the high kick, the low kick, the spinning heel kick to the body, to the head, to the leg. He'll throw double punches to the head, to the body, hooks, jabs, leaping with shots. It's very hard to, to time him. So if he makes it a point to be disciplined and structured in what he's doing, it should be very hard for Khan to take him down. He should be able to pick him off at length, move him around with feints, and jab, lead right, spin him around, kick to the body, kick to the head, and extend the fight and hopefully wear him down to the point that when they get to the ground, he can survive long enough, survive the round, or get back to his feet and get away from him. In theory, that's what he should be able to do. Alex Caceres has never really handled pressure very well. When he's been pressured a lot, he tends to tire a lot. And in his recent outings, he's defensively become pretty predictable and pretty lazy. But if Alex Caceres is on and he's ready to go and he's looking at this as an opportunity, the question is, can Kron get this, get in the positions he needs to get in to get the fight to the ground? Once it's at the ground, it's not a contest. But it depends on how it gets to the ground and, and what condition Kron is when he gets Caceres to the ground. What I think is interesting here is that he was able to get Tassia Kawajiri, who's a bigger and stronger fighter, more seasoned fighter as well than Alex Caceres to the ground. And once he got him there, it was just absolute domination. It was out of control. It was pretty bad. Um, and I you, think you're that, right on that, but Kawajiri is like, and, and once again, this might happen to Caceres, but Caceres has footwork. Caceres has movement. Caceres has feint. Kawajiri is pretty much a straight up, straight ahead brawler or a guy who might load up for a counter shot. He doesn't really have layers to his defense or his offense. So there's not much of a threat. He'll throw something big, you take him down. Or he'll be so scared to go on the ground, he'll back straight up. Caceres has the ability to dance around the cage, to spin around Kron, to, to really make him pay, walk through some fire to get to the, get to the positions he wants to. If Kron can handle it and maintain his poise, he'll just win off pressuring and, and, and controlling the pace of the fight. If he gets flustered or if he doesn't like what he's feeling – we might have an upset going. You just never know with Caceres at this stage. I don't know how committed he is to the process of winning. If he's really on it, it's a very tough fight for Kron because stylistically, it's much harder. He's not as accomplished as Karajiri, but he's a more difficult fight, and not physically difficult, but mentally, in how you have to approach him. But we don't. We never know what's up with Caceres. He's as... He's on his own trip, man. You know how he is. Yeah, like, yeah, you, that, that, that's a whole nother. I mean, we never know what this guy's up to. Um, I also wanted to talk about the uh, Aljamain Sterling Jimmy Rivera fight that we have that's going to be the main event of the prelims uh, portion of this fight. What do you think about this fight here, man? I think this is going to be a pretty uh, an intriguing bout between these two men. Aljamain is talking a, a, a big game, but. Rivera's a tough out. What are your thoughts about the, the, this fight between these two bantamweight contenders? If I recall, Aljamain's wanted this fight for a while, and Jimmy Rivera was on his win streak, so he could just kind of say, I'm up here, you're down here, I'm not, make, I'm not taking steps backwards. Yep. Now Rivera has to take the fight because he came off a devastating loss, and I'm happy for Aljamain because it's an important fight, and I'm happy for Rivera because it's an important fight, and there's not a lot of important fights going on at bantamweight. Like, there hasn't been a whole lot of them with the division being hijacked with TJ and whatever is going on. Um, it's, it comes down to this with me. I've said this about Rivera before. Rivera is very studious. He's very methodical. He's very smart. Whatever your plan A is, whatever you like to do best, he will find a way to shut it down, slow it down, or outright neutralize it. And if you don't have a plan B or you can't make an adjustment, 
within the round or between rounds because your corner, like a lot of mixed martial arts corners are, don't understand what they're seeing and don't understand what the guy's doing, then he will finish you or just beat you to a decision because he's taking away the play of your biggest strength. But if you have a plan B or you can make an adjustment, you have another element or aspect to attack him from, he falls apart. He's good dealing with your plan A. He's deal. He's good with dealing with your initi- initi- your primary strength. He's not very good with dealing with your secondary strength. And that's where you can get him at. That's where he's lost fights. Every fight, even the fights he's won, when a guy starts making an adjustment or realizing what he's doing and starts doing something different, that's when he starts losing. That's when he starts losing ground. That's when he starts getting pushed back. That's when he starts missing. That's when he starts getting desperate. The biggest advantage he has is he's more physical than Aljo. He hits harder than Aljo. I believe he takes a better shot than Aljo. Aljo can be bullied. He's 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 like a John Jones guy. He uses length. He moves fairly well. He's got great transitions. He's able to use athleticism to get these unique takedowns and transitions to different positions. But the fact of the matter is where he differs from Jones is he's not very durable. He doesn't like taking punishment as much as Jones does. Jones has a mean streak. Jones will take it to give it back. And he's not as physical a fighter as Jones. You can bully him. In fact, in his last win, when he got that submission on the guy, I forgot that leg submission he pulled off him. For large parts of that fight, that guy was bullying him on the ground. He was controlling him. He was stuffing takedowns. He was making him fight very hard for takedowns and punishing him. The fact of the matter is he spent too much time in those exchanges and then allowed Aljamain to get into positions he wanted to get into because he was determined to stay in that position and maintain that control instead of bailing out and the reasserting control. Rivera is fully capable of doing that. But once again, if Aljo makes an adjustment as far as how he's setting the takedowns up, maybe he decides he's going to use a front kick, he's going to faint, faint the punches, get draw Rivera out, that's when Rivera starts falling apart. And if Rivera gets put on the bottom against Aljo or he gets caught in a scramble, I don't see how he doesn't get finished. If the worst case scenario, um, Aljo just running through the ringer, wear him out, and win a decision on him. Um, Aljo's defense isn't great in the pocket. His boxing isn't great. It's gotten better. It's not great. He can still be got there. His kicking game is the strength of his striking. But once again, that can be defeated with pressure and physicality. I guess basically I'm going to have to see Aljo's secondary game. If he has a secondary game he can go to when he gets bullied, when he gets backed up, it's over for Rivera. If he sticks strictly to staying in long range and trying to pot shot and stay away and dive in for takedowns, it'll be an easy win for Rivera because Rivera is expecting that. Aljo has to go into the fight thinking my plan A is not going to work and have a strong plan B ready that's going to force hit, force Rivera to open up and allow him to go right back to plan A and dominate the fight. So let me ask you this. Who needs this win more? I'd say, man, it might be even. Both those guys had some – no, no, they both had wins since. None of them were – I think I think it's equal. I think both of them are in the line to be maybe a fight away from a title fight again. If they do an interim belt, they might be. If they do an interim belt, whoever wins this fight would be challenging uh, Marlon Moraes for the interim championship. So neither one of these guys can afford to to, to lose it. Secondly, um, unfortunately, since both lost to Moraes, I don't I don't know that either one of them would, would get a title shot even if there was for an interim title. Now that I think about it, I don't think either one of them can afford to lose. I think a loss for either one of them is is pretty much crushing. Sets them back two or three fights easy. I, I don't think either one of them can afford it. I think it's equal. True, very true. There, I think it's going to be pretty uh pretty interesting breakdown there. Um, 
let's see, let's see, let's see. Is there anything else from this card? I wanted to. What do you think? Is there anything else on, on, on this card? There's some pretty other names there, like Nick Lance is fighting. Um, Jessica Panay, I think she's fighting for her spot on the roster. What else kind of stands out? Hinton Barrow was there, too. I completely forgot about him. Is there anything else yeah, on this card that stands out? It's easy to forget about him nowadays. Okay. It really is. Um, I'm just surprised Panay's fighting. I mean, she hasn't fought in, what, two years? Yeah, it's been a while. She's been injured. Yeah, she's, she's pretty much fighting for her career. She loses this, and she maybe goes to Bellator if they'll take her. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot of really good fights. I'd say the fights we talked about are the ones that have the clearest storylines and impact the direction of their division most immediately and most severely. So, yeah, those would be the biggest fights I talked to. I'm, I'm interested to see how Panay looks. She did look great in her last fight before she got suspended. I'm curious to what she looks like after a year, two years out of the cage. I think it's man. She just doesn't take damage well. I mean, uh, she fought at the wrong weight class. She should be an atom weight. She moved up from atom weight to come to the UFC, and I think she had a couple wins, and then after that, it was just all downhill. I mean, they ever bring that atom weight division over? I think they could. I think I, I think they could get rid of featherweight and then have an atom weight fight. To be quite honest, I think that's what they're going to do. You think that atom weight division would have much more talent? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's tons of atom weights. There's more atom weights than any other weight class. There's a lot of girls who will cut down to be an atom weight. A lot of the straw weights would cut down to atom weight if they could. I, I think it'd be I think it'd be phenomenal. Who do you think would be the first champion? If it's not somebody from Japan um, in the UFC. I'd say Michelle Watterson probably have a leg up on most people. I mean, she 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 she'd have the clearest path to the title. I I think she'd have the clearest path to the title, and I think she'd have the best bet at this stage. Interesting, interesting thoughts. I, I think that 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 would be an, uh, intriguing. I mean, even and um, Angela Lee fights in Japan right now for One FC. She actually she fights in the promotion's strawweight division or atom weight division, but it's actually the UFC strawweight division because you know they do their weight classes a little bit. Yeah, different. yeah. She could be fighting at one. You know, I'll put Angela Hill. Angela Hill might have a chance with her athleticism. I think her power carries a lot more damage at at um. Adam Way. I think in Adam Way she could she would she might be the dark horse to be a champion. I would I, I would watch a title fight between her and um and Michelle. I think that could be a pretty interesting fight. Uh, like a co main on like a UFC on ESPN plus whatever that that, that is. They probably they'd probably do something like they did with the flyweight division where they'd have like a four man tournament, four woman tournament, first two fight, next two fight, there you go. Yeah, that's definitely pretty uh some, Random conversation, but definitely a, a very uh, in, in intriguing idea. So uh, let everybody know what else are you looking forward to, and what are you working on as we head into this busy, busy weekend of MMA action. Um, I'm just still trying to work on this thing about prospects. What I'm looking forward to is seeing more discussions about. I guess I hate to say this, but see the hypocrisy of the fighters complaining about salaries and pays and benefits, but then not doing anything in and of themselves to take care of themselves in these situations instead of instead complaining to the fans that they routinely insult like you know i'm a fighter i'm not an accountant i'm a fighter i'm not a customer service person please put some pressure on the organization to get me paid well which one is it dude am i a loser or am i a important uh, um money spending customer who can help influence your career like i i just get so tired of the fighter at, i'm not tired of them suffering or speaking out about it but i'm tired of them speaking out about it and not doing anything about it but then laughing at us or complaining to us about their lot in life. You don't have to fight if you don't want to. I get it's your dream, 
a lot of us don't get to do our dreams because it doesn't pay the bills and we have ourselves to take care of parents if not wives girlfriends husbands whatever we don't get to do our dream if your dream's not paying your bills and not allowing you to take care of your kids you need to find something else to do so my dad told me when it came to taking care of my kids that's what i would tell anybody else if you want to make a vote change somebody has to be willing to take the bullet so that other people can win and until somebody decides to do that until a lot of fighters decide to do that it is not going to get any better and telling us about it ain't going to help anything i'm not dana white i don't work for the ufc i don't work for bellator i can't fix anything so you've got to make a decision that your career, your well-being, or the, or the future of the sport and the people in it is, is important enough to you to sacrifice what you have going on to make a difference. And until you make that sacrifice, it's kind of messed up to kind of put the onus on us, the keyboard warriors or the armchair quarterbacks, as they often refer to us. It's like you make fun of us when we, when we criticize you, but then you want our support and our support and our money so you can get a title shot or you can get a pay raise. Well, you're gonna make that stand. Make that stand all the time. I mean, that's a pretty, um, pretty strong breakdown there. Uh, did you let everybody know where you, where they can find your content? Let them know how to find you on Twitter, sir. I'll be the Black Jordan Breen um, on Twitter. We can talk fighter contracts. We can talk coaching. We can talk training. We can talk sparring. We can talk fighting. I'll talk about it all. I don't get offended. I just ask you to be respectful and I will respect you and we can talk and we can agree to agree. We can agree to disagree. You'll find me on Twitter at black Jordan Breen and you will be finding me on MMA ratings.net very soon. True. True. So with that in mind, I mean, I'm, I'm working on a lot of different things. I just published a pretty interesting piece about Kofi Kingston. So go check that out this week. Uh, I just promoted a piece about Kevin Gastelum too, and, and his action as the phony King of the middleweight. So let's talk about that. Too. He, he, he has to do it. Jail said it. He goes, you get one, you get one shot in the spotlight. You need to do whatever you can because the UFC will forget about you in a second. Ask about all those guys who got injured. Ask Kobe Covington what happened to his title shot. He's still waiting. Yep, a lot of guys have been. Oh, you can't make this fight. Okay, we'll get you back. Oh well, he turned it down. You got to do whatever you can to keep the focus on you. Keep people talking. I mean, you have integrity or a title shot. You have the rest of your life to build up your name again. You ain't getting another title shot unless you force their hand. You got to try whatever you can do to do it. We got no title shots. Yep, <laughs> exactly. That's basically how it's going to break down. So with that in mind, thank you, Matt, for another good show. Uh, we'll be back next week, and everyone have a good weekend. and Enjoy the Monday off if you have it. Yeah, thanks, guys, for the support. We'll see you later. No problem. Have a great day. Yeah, you too.